Focus on Headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our Friday uh, reporters, Kwon Soa and Son Bogyang. Guys, welcome back. Good evening. Uh, guys, we're going to start things off with the defense ministers of uh, South Korea and the United States uh, having met for the annual security consultative meeting. Uh, of course, all the more important as uh, what's going on here on the Korean Peninsula has been at the tensest uh, situation uh, in recent memories here. We had a barrage of North Korean provocations from short-range ballistic missiles to intercontinental ballistic missiles, which, I mean, the intercontinental ballistic missile uh, recently fell short of uh, being a successful test. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, what was discussed at this year's meeting? Po you're going to start us off here. Right. So Defense Minister Lee jong sup and his counterpart Lloyd Austin held the 54th annual security consultative meeting at the Pentagon on Thursday local time. The meeting was held at a time when North Korea fired missiles and artilleries and apparently an ICBM as well. As North Korea's provocations had been occurring all too frequently these past couple of months, and because of North Korea's advancing nuclear capabilities, Seoul has been calling for a nuclear sharing arrangement like the one of NATO. The two defense chiefs issued a joint statement after the meeting. The statement drew attention as Defense Secretary Austin used the expression, the end of the Kim Jong-un regime. The exact words of Austin were, any nuclear attack any nuclear attack against the United States or its allies, including the use of non-strategic nuclear weapons, is unacceptable and will result in the end of the Kim regime. Seoul and Washington agreed to deploy U.S. strategic assets to South Korea in a timelier and coordinated manner and add new measures to beef up deterrence efforts. Such deterrence efforts refer to information sharing, joint consultation, and planning and execution. Both ministers also agreed to seek ways for expanding the current deterrence capabilities through the KIDD and to finalize the revision of the TDS before next year's SCEM. Especially, both sides agreed to hold the DS DSCTTX annually, which includes a scenario in which North Korea uses its nuclear weapons. All right, so uh, Pogyang basically gave us uh, a roundup of what exactly happened here. Uh, and it's all the more important with this meeting, with what's going on uh, with North Korea's continued provocation. But uh, it was not just that. We had other things that were being discussed at the very meeting between the two defense uh, ministers here. So you have more on this as well? Yes, uh, as I do, um, as uh, Pogyang did lay out uh, some of uh, the um, points, uh, let me go into some other details. Uh, as she said, South Korea's Defense Minister Lee jong sop and his U.S. counterpart Lloyd Austin, uh, along with senior defense and foreign affairs officials, met uh, together for this SCM meeting, and uh, they reaffirmed the two nations' commitments to a combined defense posture against North Korean aggression and maintaining stability on the Korean Peninsula and the region. Uh, and they took the occasion, of course, to strongly condemn North Korea's escalating military activities and violations against UN Security Council resolutions, uh, including ballistic missile test launches, multiple rocket launches, and firing of coastal artillery, calling on the international community to hold the North responsible for its actions. 
And uh, based on a review, the top defense officials made on the current security environment on the Korean Peninsula, uh, they specified four categories of their extended deterrence cooperation against Pyongyang's evolving threats in a joint communique. Pogyang did uh, mention this already, but uh, let me um, expand on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the four categories that they talked about, uh, information sharing, consultation process, joint planning and execution, you might wonder what information sharing, uh, for instance, uh, could uh, mean in this regard. There have been a lot of calls in South Korea for the country to have a nuclear sharing agreement uh, with the U.S., one that's similar to that of NATO. I think Pogyang mentioned that as well. But yeah. Uh, in terms of execution, the secretary and the minister further pledged to conduct the DSC or Deterrent Strategic Committee's tabletop exercise annually, and uh, that would include a North Korean nuclear use scenario in response to recent changes in the North's nuclear strategy and capabilities. And in their statement, it was also mentioned uh, that uh, South Korea and the U.S. marking their 70th anniversary of their alliance next year, various joint events are to be held to lay a foundation for the future development of the alliance. Yeah, I mean, there's just going to be a lot of back and forth between the United States and uh, South Korea at this time. But I'm going to be honest with you, the one that uh, the, the statement by Lloyd Austin here, any nuclear attack against the United States or its allies, including the use of non-strategic nuclear weapons, is unacceptable and will result in the end of the Kim regime. Uh, it is pretty, you know, big words right now, uh, but we know that that's going to happen. And also, Kim Jong-un actually also knows that if he does use the nuclear weapon, we're not talking about nuclear weapons test, if he does end up using nuclear weapon against whether it be uh, South Korea or the United States, and we're please, we're hoping that doesn't happen, uh, it is definitely going to be the end of the Korean regime because the U.S. is going to be all over North Korea on that. So that's the other thing they're looking at here. And uh, that's the other reason why I keep saying that it's highly unlikely that North Korea would actually use nuclear weapons because unlike Putin, uh, Kim Jong-un does not want to lose his power. Uh, he, th that's the last thing that he knows uh, he wants to do at this time. And so uh, he knows for sure. I think North Korea also knows that if they do end up using and attack any kind of any countries using nuclear weapons, that it will be the end end of the regime and uh, I think Lloyd Austin given that North Korea already knows is basically you know said what I think everyone knows at this time uh, but in the meantime South Korean Defense Minister Lee Jong-sup asked to extend the joint air exercise by another day uh, let's get the details of that as well Bo-kyung right so during his meeting with US Secretary of Defense Law Defense, uh, Lloyd Austin and Pentagon, South Korea's Defense Minister Lee Jong-sub asked to extend the five-day vigilant storm practice by another day. The air exercise that includes 240 aircraft such as the F-35 stealth fighter jets was scheduled to end on Friday, but both parties decided to extend it as North Korea fired an intercontinental ballistic missile on Thursday. After such announcement was made, North Korea fired three short-range ballistic missiles into the East Sea in protest against the extension of the training. In fact, North Korea has fired more than 33 missiles before and now during the training. And according to an update during the afternoon, the South Korea's Joint Chief of Staff said that it identified about 180 North Korean military aircraft from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Friday, flying toward the tactical action line called the TAL. 
And so the Korean military dispatched around, air forces dispatched around 80 aircraft, including the stealth fighter F-35A, to respond to such provocations. In the press briefing, Minister Lee said that since it is difficult to deploy U.S. strategic assets at all times, as this would require high maintenance and costs, both countries will deploy the strategic assets in a timely manner whenever considered necessary, and this will be as effective as having the strategic assets at all times. Okay, so Pogyang, also, what's this uh, take training that the Joint Chiefs of Staff is planning to do as well? Right, so the take training is an annual four-day command post exercise, which is scheduled to kick off Monday. The purpose of the training is to enhance operational capabilities against various threats, including those from North Korea's nuclear and missile programs and its recent provocations. The training involves the operational commands of the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. All right, and uh, and it's probably highly expected that when this drill happens, uh, North Korea is going to be responding with some more provocations uh, by next week as well. Um, But here's the thing, though. It's been a uh, hectic uh, past uh, week here. North Korea with their barrage of provocative uh, missile tests here. Uh, and of course, they continued those acts uh, last night as it fired three short-range ballistic missiles, uh, some 80 artillery shells being fired into the sea as well. So well, let's get the details of that. Right. Three SRBMs uh, were fired toward the East Sea on Thursday night. According to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, that was from Koksan County in North Hwangedo province around 9.35 p.m. Uh, The missiles flew some 490 kilometers at an altitude of 130 kilometers at a top speed of Mach 6. And uh, this came just around an hour after the North lambasted against South Korea and the U.S., having decided to extend uh, their joint air drills. At around 11.30 p.m., Pyongyang fired some 80 artillery shells into the military buffer zone in the East Sea. And uh, that's, again, again, um, according to the J. CS, a violation of the 2018 military agreement made between the two Koreas, which was aimed at easing tensions in regards to um, military activities. Uh, and uh, this was uh, quite obviously an apparent protest against the vigilant storm, the air, the drills. And these firings also followed an ICBM and two SRBMs earlier in the day, after which Seoul announced its air drills will be extended. Uh, in response to the latest threats, the JCS said in a statement, our military will maintain a firm readiness posture while tracking and monitoring related moves in preparation for further provocations by North Korea and that in close coordination with the U.S. You know, guys, I think uh, it was a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about whether or not you guys were concerned with all these provoca- all these missile tests from the North. Um, but at the time, you know, it was we're talking about like one or two short-range right. ballistic missiles. Uh, this week was... Again, a barrage of uh, ballistic missiles, not to mention artillery shells, one that's also landed very close to the South Korean waters here. Are you at this? Because I'm starting to realize, because we talk about how every time North Korea conducts these uh, missile tests that uh, South Koreans or anyone that lives in South Korea, they're kind of desensitized. They don't really care much about it. They say, well, it's North Korea being North Korea once again. But when you see all this, I've been noticing that Koreans are now starting to think differently about North Korea's recent actions. I'm kind of wondering how you guys feel as well. Bogyeo, I mean, are you a bit more concerned than you were maybe a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about North Korea's uh, provocations? 
to be honest, not. Still no. Still wow, really? Maybe I'm too Korean. So maybe I'm, as you say, desensitized. Yeah. So uh, recently I've been just worried about the past accident that happened in Itaewon. And I was a little bit too much overwhelmed ah, with that news. Yeah, yeah. So I know that this is a little bit more harsher. And it's, you know, the, provo- the level of the provocations is really getting higher. But um, still, I think that, you know, a war or something like that couldn't happen on this peninsula. Still, uh, at yes. this time, right? I mean, you're right. I mean, again, we talk about how if a war were to break out on the Korean peninsula, it's highly likely that the Kim regime would probably lose its power. And, you know, Kim Jong-un, as much as threats that, you know, we're, coming, we're getting from the north, it's highly unlikely that they'll start first. So, so what about yourself? Because um, you're kind of not Korean, so... Exactly. Maybe yeah. I, I don't think that has anything to do with me not being a Korean citizen, but I am actually concerned more than uh, Pogyong, I think, because, um, yeah, this time these uh, military threats seem to be at a different level. Yeah. And uh, also, um, the first time when I heard the news, I, it already kind of got me, got me concerned. I was on my way somewhere when I heard in the radio that uh, those uh, warnings uh, came on uh, Ulungdo, right? right? So when I heard that, that sounds, that sounds different than uh, what we heard before from um, North Korean threats. And yeah, I think uh, even if we look at what's happening in Ukraine, that's something we did not expect months ago. So there are many things in the world that happen that we do not expect. So that's why I think even we can, it's imaginable that North yeah. Korea steps up its uh, provocations. And also, if it does conduct its seventh nuclear test, we should not be reacting to that as if it's something that we highly were expecting. I know that everyone is talking about that it's going yeah, to happen yeah. soon, but because we are talking about it's ha- that it's going to happen soon, that makes Koreans even feel more as if this is something not that unusual made yeah. by North Korea. And but that is not a big deal because yeah, North, exactly. it's North Korea. Yes, but uh, I think definitely this is a quite a serious situation, the tensions right now. Yeah, I think a little bit different with Ukraine in that Ukraine doesn't necessarily have an alliance, and that's the big thing, right? They wanted the NATO alliance so that they could get protection. Uh, you know, South Korea, obviously, has the protection of the United States at this time. Um, But for me, it's one of those things when you have like a barrage of different missiles being fired left and right and you have these artillery shells being fired. One accident, like one accidental shot that was not meant to Mm. land like on South Korean territory or something and that leads to like a casualty of a South Korean, that could spark a war. And that's the thing that I'm concerned about because I'm kind of wondering if North Korea, if it was really their kind of plan to fire that one, you know, short-range ballistic mm-hmm. missile into uh, either the waters really close to South Korea uh, earlier this week, or if that was like a mistake, or if they really meant to do it, I don't know. Uh, but it really takes just a mistake, yeah. uh, and it could happen, and uh, that's what I'm worried about here. But it's 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 interesting to get like the two two different kind of. Uh, I don't know if you remember about the Yonpyeong. Of course I do. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. back in. To 2010, I think, in November. So back then, I was kind of frightened and I was threatened by what was going on because, because the really, artillery shells yes, actually landed actually on, landed yeah. on Korean territory, and I thought really something could happen. But now, as you say, it's been more than a decade, and the level and sophistication of the missiles that they have is much stronger than back then. So I think it really puts us in a difficult place because, as you say, one mistake can change the entire situation. Yeah, and I think I think people forget back in 2002, uh, you know, I think the two Koreas were very close to 
kind of going out in an all-out war. And uh, one of the uh, the South Korean warships. 2002? Was it 2002, I believe. Uh, one of the warships, right, mm. uh, was ah. was attacked by uh, North Korea. And uh, that could have resulted in a full-out war. That, you know, Luckily, it didn't happen, but it did result in a casualty and the number of uh, Navy, South Korean Navy soldiers uh, being killed. But uh, again, I, I, this you is... You mean the Cheonanam? Yeah, Cheonanam yeah, incident, right? And so... Um, Anything could happen, which is why I think also, you know, Pogim, you might be thinking, you're right. I think more people are kind of focused on the E-10-1 incident, mm. so they're not really feeling the gravity mm. of seriousness with North Korea. But they, I have been seeing a lot more Koreans now going, uh-oh, okay, this now it's getting a little bit more concerning here. Uh, but with this, the uh, UN Security Council, they're going to be convening once again, this after only about a month over North Korea's recent provocations. Uh, Pogim, let's get more on this. Yes, yeah, so the UN Security Council will hold an open meeting today actually at the headquarters in New York. According to a news outlet, countries such as the U.S., U.K., France, Albania, Ireland, Norway, they've, uh, they've called for the convening of this open meeting. And so this meeting will be held only a month after, which is the 5th of last month, that it was held because of North Korea's provocations back then as well. So South Korea is actually not a member of the U.N. Security Council, however, will take part as one of the stakeholders or the uh, country that is actually affected by this situation. And this meeting will be held after all these missiles are being fired by North Korea since uh, since the last couple of days with more than 25 missiles being fired at least. And as you all know that uh, when North Korea fires, fires these missiles, this is all a violation of the UN Security Council's resolutions. And of course, some missiles or the ICBM was a failure and it did not succeed. Yeah. However, still, it is considered as a very serious violation and also that it, North Korea is really reaching the level of sophistication that they wanted to have. And so according to the Foreign uh, Ministry of South Korea says that the global community will have to cope with this situation, I think looking into the violation of North Korea's uh, North Korea's violation of the resolution. And we have to think about the situation that actually the situation within the UN Security Council is a little bit, you know, not certain because there are countries such as China and Russia that will not you know, be against North Korea. And even if the UN Security Council will want to vote for anything, a resolution against North Korea still, as you all know, China and Russia will probably veto. And that has also happened last uh, last May as well. So even if there will be an open meeting and the global community will want to do something, still there will be limitations with the Ukraine war going on still and with Russia and China still being in the UN Security Council. The only uh, the kicker here is that uh, recently when the, uh, the, the UN General Assembly, uh, they had tried to pass a resolution in regards to North Korea trying to uh, against North Korea's future nuclear test or so forth. Uh, they had a number of countries that, of course, uh, voted against, uh, voted for the resolution. The one country that voted against it was North Korea. And Russia and China had actually voted for the resolution going against uh, North Korea uh, and their nuclear weapon test. And so what they're now saying is that if North Korea actually does conduct their seventh nuclear test and the UN uh, Security Council uh, end up trying to pass a new resolution against North Korea, that Number one, China would be kind of forced to not veto. And Russia now is the big surprise. Russia might also not use their veto power mm. as well. Uh, that's what's coming out right now. So North Korea, um, because... 
there's also much, right? Like, you know, China and Russia, they can go, all right, if it's a ballistic missile test, we're just going to veto it. But if it's a nuclear test, I think it's a different issue. So, but we don't know just yet. I mean, you know, hopefully it doesn't get to the, you know, situation where North Korea ends up testing their nuclear weapons and they have to go to the UNSC once again. Uh, but North Korea, of course, was one of the uh, topics addressed during talks between South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol and uh, German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier on Friday. Uh, so uh, tell us more about this meeting. Right. Uh, the two presidents had a one-on-one this Friday at the presidential office earlier this morning as the German president is currently visiting South Korea. Uh, the two held a joint press briefing following the meeting as these and as these talks came amid North Korea's continuous threats, the German president used the occasion to accuse North Korea of repeatedly jeopardizing global security. Uh, so he urged Pyongyang to seriously begin negotiations on denuclearization or rather resume them. Uh, and uh, Steinmeier said, I think the uh, the Pyongyang regime is solely responsible for the current situation. And uh, the two leaders uh, also um, spoke about other uh, issues regarding North Korea, including uh, humanitarian issues. And uh, President Yoon Suk-yeol also noted that Germany can offer many lessons to the two Koreas, of course, because Germany is a nation that experienced division and reunification. Uh, the two leaders also um, discussed cooperation on supply chains as well as the war in uh, Ukraine. And uh, this is uh, Steinmeier's uh, th- a three-day official visit here to uh, South Korea. And uh, he is also going to meet with uh, Prime Minister Han Dok-su. Uh, the German president um, also offered condolences for the Itaewon tragedy that happened on Saturday. Speaking of which, uh, we're going to move on to our continued uh, coverage on this uh, Itaewon tragedy here. Uh, Tomorrow is going to mark, of course, one week since this very devastating uh, tragedy happened. Uh, With all this, a a dedicated team will be set up under the Prime Minister's office to help the families and those affected by the Itaewon uh, tragedy here. Uh, Pogyeong, let's get the uh, details of that. Yes, so before I do, I would like to also express my condolences for what happened last week. And so to continue, a a one-stop support center will be set up in order to support the families and those who were affected from the Itaewon accident that happened last week. And the center will be actually set up set up under the prime minister's office. And according to the uh, government official saying that this center will support the payment of any funerals or treatments of those who were affected, injured, and also provide consultations and psychological treatments as well. So it will be more like an integrated support center to cover all these areas. And the head of the center will be Prime Minister Han Dok-su. And not only will the Prime Minister's office will be working for this center, the Ministry Ministry of Interior and Safety, the Ministry of um, Welfare and Health will also be working together and also the Seoul Metropolitan Government together and they will be creating teams to support 
support the related matters. And so um, they will be providing guidelines for any conventions or meetings that will gather people more than, that will be more than 500,000 people. And they will also be cooperating with the police authority as well to prevent any crowd, especially in the subway stations during the rush hours, yeah. and to prevent any similar accidents from happening. And for instance, the Ministry of Welfare and Health and Welfare will be uh, dispatching their officials to those 35 injured people and provide some treatment payments as well. And also, uh, there will be uh, interpretation services provided for those families who are who come from abroad, who can't speak Korean. And so those services will be provided. And also the Ministry of Transportation will also be managing all those roads and also those illegally built buildings as well to once again see that these accidents can be prevented. And any buildings that were illegally built will have to be reviewed once again according to the legislation. So this support center will cover actually many areas where many industries will be involved. Yeah, so I think they were talking about the, uh, they're, they're doing renovations, I think, at the Hamilton Hotel and uh, the extension that they have, they're saying that it might be actually against some kind of building code or something like that. But here's the thing, I think, you know, the most important thing out of this, again, I, I've mentioned this all throughout this week, but uh, the monetary assistance, uh, you know, the financial assistance, I think that's important, uh, the medical treatments. Uh, that they're getting is important as well, but it's the the mental treatment, right? The psychological treatment that uh, is needed at this time, because um, for those that have, uh, again, even you know the survivors of the Itaewon tragedy, uh, sure their injuries uh, will soon be, you know, hopefully uh, quickly be healed and so forth. But it's the mental trauma uh, that's going to probably be, you know, stuck on there for. Who knows? Uh, months, year, years. Um, it, we don't know. And so, for the government to continue to help support the victims, uh, the survivors, and also the the families of the victims, I think that's the most important thing uh, at this time. Um, also, uh, let's get some uh, updated figures regarding the very tragedy as well. Um, luckily, the death toll. I hate to use the word luckily, but... Uh, I know exactly what you mean. It's, mm. It hasn't moved. Right. It's, it's what it is right now, right? 156, I believe? Right, right. The death toll remains at 156. Uh, as of this Friday morning, the Central Disaster and Safety Countermeasures Headquarters said the number of injured stands at 191, uh, with that casualties account for 347. 33 of uh, the injured people are being treated at hospitals, and uh, among the 156 deaths, funeral procedures were completed or their bodies have been sent to their home countries. Um, out of the 156, I'll find uh, the exact number of uh, how many of these uh, procedures were completed. Uh, but uh, there, was, I think, was it a was majority. It was 121 uh, as of yesterday, I believe. Uh, I'll check that yeah. once more uh, later on. Uh, now, meanwhile, the Seoul Metropolitan Police said this Friday that the Wonhyoru multipurpose gym, which had been used for storing remains of the tragic accident, will be operating a week longer until the 13th, not the 6th, uh, taking into consideration that many families of the victims and injured were not able to retrieve the belongings. Uh, as of this morning, some 781 items remained and the gym opens from 9 a.m. to uh, 8 p.m. Uh, the, the the article that I saw uh, didn't really mention why uh, not all the families um, could uh, retrieve the belongings.
things, but I can imagine that yeah. it's just too uh, difficult for them to go there because they're not ready. That, that could be one reason, I think. Yeah, I, I read, again, it's it's always the stories that come out after the, uh, the incident that uh, really breaks my heart. Uh, you know, I read the story of uh, one of the parents that were finally able to get their the, the cell phone, the smartphone of one oh. of the victims, uh, opened it up and uh, they saw a picture of you know you know them together and really, it's it's tough. It, it really is. And uh, Paulina Maldonado, uh, you put it correctly. Unfortunately, yes, you're right. Forever, uh, it's something that they'll never forget. And you know, it's also kind of you know speaking of which, de- being desensitized, right? I mean, like we were always kind of desensitized in being in these like large packed crowds. Be living in Seoul, like, you know, when you ride the subways and things like that. And so they were saying that recently because of this incident, uh, at, at the uh, subway station in uh, during rush hour, you know how you know how packed it gets and people start pushing and stuff. One person basically screaming, stop pushing. Everyone just kind of backed out, backed mm-hmm. off and said, and you know, and, and for all the Koreans too, they know what happened, right? And so these are the other things that I, I think, you know, our lives are never it's going to change now uh the way that we deal with crowds and so forth uh whether it be i know we're going to talk about this uh, later on the show but there's not going to be uh the, the world cup's coming up soon right yeah. so you know usually we you know fans go out into the streets and hundreds of thousands of people go out into the streets and uh, cheer that's that's when we think about it like back in 2002 when we had the seoul world cup I don't know when if you guys were in Gwanghwamun back then, but I, I wasn't was even in Korea. Ah, okay. So yeah, I, I mean, was. I was in New York, but it, and it was totally packed. I mean, but then we were so organized. But there were measures in place. There yeah. were protocols in place, and where they knew how to get the crowd going in and stuff. And I've been to the uh, what was it? I went to uh, Coex for the. 2010 World Cup, and there was like you know tens of thousands of people, but the police were doing basically lining people up and sitting people but one by one. That's the thing; those are organized, officially organized events. Right. And in Itaon, it was not yeah, an organized. Not. And, and that's the argument that I am not a big fan of. They're saying that there were no protocols in place and no measures in place because it wasn't an organized event. Right. But I'm you knew so, that there was. Oh no, no, I'm no, not no, saying no, that what you said no, is no, wrong. No, no, yeah. uh, I'm saying that what this is what some of the officials are mm. using as an excuse for why there wasn't a protocol in place. But when there's 100,000 people gathering in one spot, it doesn't matter if it's not an organized mm-hmm. event. You need to have a measure in place yeah. for crowd control mm-hmm. is what I'm trying to say here. Uh, yeah, a lot of our messages are coming in regards to some of the stories that they've read. I'm not going to read them because it's, it's to be honest with you, it's really tough to read them. Uh, guys, let's go on. I just want to make a, a yeah. quick... Um, uh, the number up. The number, yeah. yeah. Out of the 156 fatalities, 136 of, uh, funeral procedures were said to have been completed as of this Friday. Thank you very much for the updates there, guys. Uh, moving on here to some economy-related news. The financial authorities saying that DB Life pushing back the call date is uh, nothing to be concerned about in regards to... Uh, a number of uh, the market-related issues here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, they said it's not going to have an impact on the market. What is this about? Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so the Financial Services Commission said in a press briefing that DB Life pushing back the first call date for its hybrid debt is just a change of the date and it does not mean that the company will be insolvent. According to the Financial Services Commission, this type of securities is only invested by a small number of investors and since this bond is not distributed in the market, there will be no such thing as a critical impact on the bond market. The Financial Services Commission 
also said that financial authorities like itself were already aware of the situation and that they are monitoring the market. Well, DB Life changed the call date of the 30 billion size hybrid date hybrid debt from the 13th of this month to May next year. And the reason why the Financial Com- Services Commission is suddenly explaining that it was aware about the situation is because what happened earlier, Hungguk Life also did the same thing that they had also postponed their call date from uh, the the size the size of the call debt uh, the hybrid debt was I think five. 500 million U.S. dollars, and they have postponed that date. And so because of these worries, the stock also plummeted. And that's why the Financial Commission Services said that the situation is in control and things are being monitored. Uh, in the meantime, let's move on over to the U.K. this time. Uh, grim forecast for the British economy as the, uh, the British pound tumbled on Thursday. Uh, this is after news of uh, the UK central bank, the Bank of England, uh, raising its hikes. Uh, they've also warned of a prolonged recession. So well, let's get the details of this. Right. The British pound plunged on Thursday local time against the US dollar. Sterling sank more than 2% to $1.11. That's the lowest level since October 14th. Uh, the Bank of England issued a giant rate hike on Thursday by 75 basis points to 3%. And that's the biggest raise in 33 years or November 2008 and 2008, meaning the financial crisis. So coming on the heels of efforts to contain soaring inflation, this decision has been made and it is the eighth interest rate hike in less than a year. Uh, The central bank made this move despite fears or forecasts that the country will find itself in a recession that could last for two years. The bank projects recession to continue through 2023 and the first half of 2024. BOE Governor Andrew Bailey attributed this to high energy prices and materially tighter financial conditions that weigh on spending. However, as inflation is too high and it's the central bank's job to bring it down, Bailey emphasized, quote, if we do not act forcefully now, it will be worse later on. Uh, The UK, with its move, meanwhile, has been following suit uh, of some similar moves made by the U.S. Federal Reserve on Wednesday and the European Central Bank last week. Yeah, I'm just going to make a quick correction on that. Uh, It was the biggest raise hike, uh, single rate hike in 33 years, which means it would be November of 1989, not 2008, because... A uh, person born in 2008 would not be 33 years old. Uh, right, good point. But I'll check that again. Yeah, no, that <laughs> because I didn't make the math. I just read 2008. So maybe... Yeah, I, what I read earlier mm. this morning was that it was 33 years ago in 1989. Then mm. I remember I was looking through all the interest rate hikes for the past 33 years that mm. Bank of England has conducted, which, by the way, uh, they're at 3% right now. Uh, but there were certain times with the Bank of England, their key interest rate was something like 12%. Uh, wow. So it, but so 3% certainly doesn't seem like a lot. But then when they had it like at around 12% and stuff like that, it was like back in like the early uh, 90s and so forth. Uh, But it's not just the Bank of England that's raising these heights. I mean, this week was a busy week for the central banks because what they were doing, it it was you had the U.S. Fed uh, making that giant step. You had the Bank of England recently. I believe Norway got involved. Uh, Australia also raising rates as well. And now the Bank of Korea, they're seeing, you know, the the, what is it? The the U.S. Fed with their 75 basis point increase. How is the Bank of Korea going to respond to all this? Because 
all the central banks are basically saying, hey, listen, we need to raise these hikes. We know that uh, the average uh, consumers and the, the, the citizens are you know, struggling with the, with the mortgage payments uh, and the high interest rates and so forth, but it's our job to quell inflation. But to be honest with you, uh, I don't see inflation being slowed down with all the, the several months, I think with the, what was it? Who is it? What the Bank of England has been raising their rates for eight consecutive uh, times now, eighth consecutive time that they've uh, increased their rates. So, am I seeing the inflation's uh, quell? Uh, I certainly don't see it right now. Some people might be arguing that it takes a while for that to kind of translate later on, but it's tough. Um, it's gonna. Bank England's uh, UK is already going through a recession, uh, and uh, many countries are going to face recession because there's going to be certainly a huge slowdown in the economy because of these uh, high interest rates. So uh, I think three uh, percent was uh, the the it, it was the biggest raise in 33 years, but mm-hmm. uh, the three percent is for the first time since uh, 2008. Yeah, so they saw three percent back in 2008. Is what you're trying yes. to say? Is what it is? Yeah, <coughs> yeah. I'm almost 100 percent sure that uh, when it, the the biggest rate hike. 75 basis uh, point rate hike was back in, uh, mm-hmm. not November, it was September of 1989. I looked at the numbers. Don't ask me why I looked at those numbers at an early because morning. Because you always do. <laughs> I know. Uh, nevertheless, guys, thank you very much uh, for your report today. As I always uh, say to all of our reporters now, please stay safe and uh, we'll see you guys again. Thank you. See stay you safe. Week. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.